0: Brian McClanahan show episode 436. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan show. Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't get to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, BrianMcClanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. Why are there? Give me an email address. I'll give you a free book, ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, And you get great deals on new courses, forthcoming courses, however I launch them. But you get great deals on all of it because you're on the email list. You get coupons, and that's the best thing about it. That's how we keep this show free of charge because you can purchase classes at McClanahan Academy. So I've got over a dozen available now, and they're awesome. I've got a new series out, Originalist Papers. First two parts are out. Second two parts come out this summer. You're going to want these things. So, going over to McLanahanAcademy.com, get on the email list, get the coupons, and buy the classes. It's a win-win. You keep this show going, and you get great content on the back end, and it's it's fantastic stuff. I mean, people will tell you it's uh, it's really changed the way they think about things. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw some money my way that way. You can buy a book plate for one of my books. You can get one of my books. You get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You click on that. click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. All kinds of ways to support the show financially. Plus, you can share this podcast around on social media. You can rate it where you get your podcasts. You can let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally. That's how we grow the audience. So let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's an article by Glenn Elmer's Too Much of a Unity. Too much of a unity. Now, Glenn Elmer's, and this goes back to something that's happened in the last week. If you're a subscriber to Chronicles magazine, you know I wrote a piece for Chronicles in April bashing the 1776 commission report as a bunch of neoconservative nonsense. Well, the neoconservatives were bound to respond to that, and Michael Anton did at American Greatness, which I will respond to that at some point in the near future. I'm not going to do it on the podcast. I'll do it in writing. And then I'll probably talk about both once once it's out there. For your so uh, that's what I want to. That that's happening, right? So we've got we've got uh, the neoconservatives attacking me for that particular piece, and and Anton's piece is a long piece, and he makes all kinds of interesting attacks on yours truly. But that said, the neoconservatives are in a strange state right now. And I say they're in a strange state because they kind of get it. They they sort of understand that what's happening in America is the direct result. Even Anton said it. All the stuff that has come out of the Claremont Institute, the neoconservatives, the jaffa the Straussians, all that stuff is contributing to what we have right now. And he apologized for it. But you can't just... I mean, you, you can't just discount everything we have to say. Why? You created the current mess that we're in with conservatism, conservatism, right? Whatever that is. So conservative ink, as Paul Gottfried calls it, has uh, rallied around Lincoln. I mean, they always do. But the, the important part of this, and of course the Declaration is central to all this. The Declaration of Independence is central to their tenets Amer- of America as a proposition nation. It's their ideology. And it comes from Lincoln. It comes from Lincoln and essentially the reformers of the 19th century who led to the creation of the Republican Party. This is what it is. And they can go back and read into the founders and say, well, they all thought this was important. Of course, this is what Anton does in the piece where he attacks me. And I say it wasn't. And I think the evidence, the the important part of it, is the line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, they're endowed by their creator, certain inalienable rights. That's where the neocons hammer on the Declaration. And as Barry Shane has pointed out in his, like, thousand-page book on the Declaration, there's no evidence that this was what they thought about it, the way that Lincoln interpreted it, or the left interprets it. This is nonsense. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. So you've got this piece by Glenn Elmer's, The title, Too Much of a Unity. And basically what he's getting at in a tortured way is that maybe we need to rethink the ideas of nullification and secession as Straussians. Maybe there's something to this, but he has to be tortured in getting to it. It's so painful to read. And he makes some really stupid statements. First of all, I mean, the whole problem is Lincoln as a constitutional scholar. He says this. Jaffa was perhaps the foremost discoverer and defender of Abraham Lincoln's philosophic statesmanship. Discoverer, because you know what? Nobody really considered Lincoln to be much of a philosopher. And Lincoln himself was making great political discoveries that fit his program. You see, this is the problem. As Gary Wills has said when he talked about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. In other words, people didn't think about it the way Lincoln did until he said this. Now, the the reformers did. Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. Frederick Douglass did. All of those people did. On the left in the 19th century, all thought of the revolution in those terms. Most Americans did not. And see, this is where the neoconservatives, they're buying into the left. This is the whole point of my Chronicles article. They've bought into the leftist talking points, but yet, we should try to hold back these things. These are the principles that we need to go by Uh, But the left is going too far with them. So in other words, these are the Girondins. These are the Girondins. We need to do these things, but when their heads start getting chopped off, which is what's happening, why are are conservatives getting chopped off by the the left? Well, because they've opened the door to it. You said this is the principle of America. These are the things that America is. Basically, a reformist left-wing America. This is what you've said. So now when you do that and the left starts running with this, which is what they're doing, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't go with that. You can't say these things. That's too far. This is Danton standing up and saying, ah, oh, we got to do these. And then, of course, he gets his head lopped off. And the only thing he has to regret is that he, he went first before Robespierre, right? The neoconservatives have led all of the right to the intellectual guillotine. Because there's no turning back from this. Once you open the door, which Lincoln did at the Gettysburg Address, once you open the door, now others had said it before, but Lincoln, because of his position as president, opened the door and all the left went running right through it. You can't close it now. It's open. So all the lefties that run around, this is the 1619 Project. All these people saying, well, America was you know, inherently... Bad Now, I would disagree with that, but they're basing it on the same idea that neocons are running around saying. Well, if America is based on a proposition that all men are created equal and uh, we're not abiding by that and Americans didn't abide by that, we didn't do it. Well, I mean, we have to apologize. Well, you know, some people tried to, and the other people didn't. It was these people that, saw that caused the problem. This is what they're doing. This is what the neocons do. Well, these people, these founders are good, but these founders were bad because they didn't believe in it. And then we had these Americans that really, really set these things back. If it wasn't for these people, we would have had a good America. America would have moved forward. But you see, as I pointed out in my piece, the majority of Americans didn't want those things. They didn't want it. It wasn't just John C. Calhoun, which is what the left, I'm sorry, the neocons always like to focus on. If it wasn't for John C. Calhoun, everything would have been great. Well, when the majority of Americans all throughout the 19th century did not believe in the tenets of what Abraham Lincoln was saying, and this is true because we know that history is very clear on this point, then who is really, that? Is the 1619 Project not correct, that Americans were essentially against these things? Were they against these things? So that's one line that I thought was ridiculous. And he says later in the piece, Joppa is perhaps most famous for his broad and unyielding defense of Lincoln as a true heir of Jefferson. And other people had said this too. Look, if you read uh, the anti-Federalist papers... Storing's attempt to show that Lincoln was the heir of the anti-federalists, the Jeffersonians, these are Lincoln. Now, you could say that Henry Clay was a National Republican and that he was an heir of Jefferson as well. I mean, you could make this argument. I think Michael Holt does in his wonderful book on the Whigs that the Whigs were in many ways a certain offshoot of Jefferson. But then so were the Democrats. So which one was it? The Democrats were as well but you had two different factions in this Jeffersonian tradition. Which includes the contention that there is no constitutional right of secession. Well, Jefferson wouldn't say that. He wouldn't say there's no constitutional right of secession. In fact, Jefferson thought there was secession. It was possible. He didn't agree with it, but he thought it was certainly possible. That the Declaration confirmed the American people as one sovereign nation, that's not what Jefferson would have said either this is all being this is all made up nonsense and that the constitution instituted the perpetual union of this people while all this can be and is true no it's not then he goes on but all that's not true that's all historical hogwash this is where jaffa made up everything and lincoln made it all up too That's the real problem with the Straussian neoconservatives because this is what they believe. And if you get to this, right, if you get to the one people theme in America, then you get one size fits all top down government. When the other side wins by a combination of factions, which is what the Democrats are, well, then it's 50 plus 1% majority against the other side and they will steamroll you. Because you see, democracy, Lincoln talked about democracy and all the democracy then becomes the method to do it. He uses a quote from Jefferson where Jefferson said that the Declaration, and I've used this before too, and I think you need to put it within context. As the principal author of of that document, the Declaration, Jefferson explained it that was intended to be an expression of the American mind and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion, meaning independence. Not this first part. Now, if you read Barry Shane and you read what other you read what Hamilton and Adams, other members, I mean, these big six of the founders, right? What other people had said about the document. and Barry Shane gives you, I forget how many how many public documents. It's a primary document, treasure trove. But what you'll find is what they meant by equality in that was political equality within the Empire. Political equality as British subjects. political equality as under the Magna Charta. This is what they were talking about, not some high-flung ideas of universal egalitarianism. That's not what they meant, because they didn't, they didn't think that at all. All this authority rests on then on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversations in letters, printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. So... Jefferson's main point in this wasn't the first sentence of the second paragraph, it was later in the second paragraph and then the last paragraph where you had free and equal states, free and independent states, I should say, is what his language was. But equality of citizens in the empire. And this meant, I mean, there were people that were not citizens in the empire, they were not equal, they were not equal. You get to uh, a little later in the piece, Lincoln says, Lincoln says that the Declaration did not exist for the sake of the Constitution. So what? Who cares what Lincoln said? Who cares if Lincoln believed the Declaration did not exist for the sake of the Constitution? Rather, the purpose of the Constitution is to advance the Declaration's principles of liberty and equality. Where is the term equality in the U.S. Constitution? I can't find it. I can't find it at all. They speak of justice common defense, domestic tranquility. I mean, there's no mention of the word equality. Why? Because, again, it wasn't really that important. Now, Anton and others will put, well, but all the state constitutions had this term of equality, free and equal. People are born free and equal. Equal as what? Subjects, citizens, equal citizens. All men are born free and equal. This is a phrase used from one of the state constitutions, but then it's always qualified by what that means. And essentially, it's the rights of Englishmen. And at this point, the rights of Americans, which is from the Anglo-American tradition. Then he gets into an Aristotelian understanding of what happiness means, and he says, to what degree, if at all, does the American regime still aim at being a partnership for achieving happiness or the good life? And what might be done to refocus our political community to that end? Then he says this, Today, the federal government, with the blessing of the Supreme Court, routinely flouts nearly every aspect of the Founders' Constitution. Judge only from this perspective, America is in bad shape indeed. We are unlikely to see a complete return to the original intent, institutions and practices the framers established in 1787. Why? This is very true, but why? Because you see, of Lincoln. This is why. Lincoln was doing this exact same thing during the war. And then, of course, the nation, the one nation argument, the nationalist argument, became the dominant theme. And, of course, once you do that, there's no opposition to these things. Now, what, what he'll do here is rather interesting. What uh, Mr. Elmers will do here is interesting because he'll say, well, this is really the this fault of the states. So, well, I agree. States have punted their responsibility. They've gotten at the trough. But what has happened is the Congress has made all of this possible. And they've basically said states have no powers anymore. You can't oppose these things. And even Elmers gets into some of that nonsense. What are the underlying principles of the Constitution? Well, federalism. That's it. That's the underlying principle of the Constitution. And he does say, though, success will depend mostly on state and local governments. This is true. This is think locally, act locally. The underlying principle of the Constitution is federalism. So it's going to require that. Now, that's what Elmers thinks. Elmers thinks it's something else. But federalism is the key and the core to all of this. He says the very idea of such a distinction seems alien to our 21st century sensibilities. talking about political and legal controversies where the court should be involved. The Constitution is law, and law is the purview of lawyers. Moreover, if the government is pursuing policies objectionable to the people, the solution is simply to replace such unfaithful stewards of the, of this con- the Constitutions at the next election with better representatives in, of the popular will. That, at least, is the common understanding today. But this is not quite how the founders viewed the matter. Well, I agree with him here. You see he's getting into this tortured it's like he wants to come to the right conclusion but Lincoln's holding him back Harry Jaffa the Jaffaite in him the Straussian in him is holding him back you can't come to the conclusion where the states have to be the logical agents of change here the states have to be the logical the logical avenue to resist central authority think locally act locally and he, has to, he comes with this tortured understanding of this. He says, who is sovereign? First, we must confront a grave difficulty. Every discussion of state sovereignty since the 1830s has been irredeemably tainted by the issues of slavery and civil rights. Well, why is that? Why is that? You see, first of all, Lincoln never said the states couldn't maintain slaves. He never said that at all. In fact, he was willing to accept it and let it continue to about 1900. He was willing to do it. Just come back in the Union. We'll let you. I mean, you can we'll have to get rid of slavery over time, but it can, it can go away. He was willing to do it because he wasn't really anti-slavery where it already existed. He was ex- against the expansion of slavery. That was Lincoln's main issue with slavery. He was a racist. Lincoln was a white supremacist. This is a question that never really is asked in the Jophites. Oh, well, Lincoln evolved over time. They get in his hand-wringing. Well, you can't say these negative things about Lincoln because he really wasn't... Uh, he was really a good guy. This is again where the 1619 project is be more consistent. If you want it, if you want to open the door to Lincoln, you've got to look at Lincoln. And they are. So I would say that this is true about Lincoln. I mean, the answer has to be, again, they should just say, well, okay, well, so what? He did these things, it's better than that, right? But they won't do it. They try to work around it, and then it just opens, them. it makes them look like fools. It makes them look like absolute idiots. But of course, this isn't necessarily true. The states in the 1830s, northern states, started putting pressure on the general government to not enforce a fugitive slave law. Now, I could talk about whether that was constitutionally valid or not, but certainly this is what states were doing. So states were doing all kinds of things in the 19th century that weren't for slavery and civil rights. He doesn't get into any of that. He says that there were a lot of arguments that didn't have to do with race and federalism. And, of course, he brings up the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, which Harry Jaffa wrote about, too. And these things, of course, were all about. Whereas, Jaffa says, if we understand the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions as Jefferson and Madison understood them at the time, the defense of states' rights and the defense of civil liberty formed part of a single argument. Looked at in the light of nearly two centuries, however, they stand at the headwaters of two divergent trends in American political and constitutional history. The defense of state rights against numerical Majoritarianism and the tyranny of the majority became in time a defense of slavery and after that, of Jim Crow. So you see, states' rights, I mean, because it was tainted. But let's think about these things. And this is, look, this is all I've ever said about this. In this case, Jaffa is right that we can talk about these things without talking about Jim Crow and slavery and everything else. There's there's something deeper to this. In fact, you can go all the way back to the colonial period. And I I don't think Jaffa... Because he can't, he hasn't investigated enough, I would say that, all the Claremont, Claremont acolytes and all these people, they don't go back far enough to understand how deep-seated nullification actually was in the American mind. It was what they used in the Stamp Act crisis. First, the framers' whole concept of an extended representative commercial republic was an innovation, part of their improved political science. They believed that dividing and mixing government authority was a shrewd way to keep tyranny in check. Federalism in the American context meant more than what has previously been understood as by federation and was thus a knotty issue from the beginning. And he brings up Federalist 39, which I think is one of the most disastrous defenses of the Constitution. I talk about it in my originalist papers course because Madison is tortured in his understanding of who really has the power, who really is sovereign. He creates this idea of dual sovereignty, which cannot exist. It cannot exist. Either one side is sovereign or the other side is sovereign. You can't have dual sovereignty. The states have to be sovereign, or the general government has to be sovereign. And we know it's not the general government because they didn't create the states. It was created by the people of the states. So sovereignty resides within the people of the states. I mean, I think that's the best way to put it. And the states themselves are made up of people. Not one United States. Of course, he brings up Federalist 46, where Madison essentially talks about nullification. He's foreshadowing the Virginia Resolves. Madison was clearly wrong about the state standing up for their own jur- jurisdictional authority, and not to mention the reserve rights of their people. Well, they, he was. They did it all the time, up to 1861, and then they didn't. Why? Because Lincoln. Because of the centralization of power in Washington. More surprising to us is how Madison sees this tension in what we might call revolutionary terms. Then, of course... Jaffa has to explain Madison. Remarkably, foreseeing the hypothetical conflict between the federal government and the states under the Constitution is not different in kind from the recent contest with Great Britain. Although Madison denies any probability of such a conflict, he anticipates that the Jefferson of the Kentucky Resolutions in seeing potential usurpations by constitutionally elected officials to be as dangerous to liberty as the usurpations of the British Crown and Parliament. And he assumes the same unanimity of the people in resisting the ambitious encroachments of their own representatives that Jefferson attributed to the all-American Whigs during the Revolution. In the extraordinary means of resistance described in Federalist 46, the role of free elections in deciding political constitutional differences to which Lincoln would appeal in 1861 is not visible. So, Lincoln, well, we got to apply, we got to appeal to elections here. Well, there was an election. In the South, there were elections of conventions, and those conventions left the Union. That's the elections that we need to understand. So then we have to push back on encroaching federal authority. For governments at the state and some degree local level to find the Courage Act, their officials must be shown a compelling case for both legitimacy and urgency of counterbalancing action. So he's saying, I don't know how to do this. It's outside my expertise. This is what we have to do. And we have to do it because Jaffa said this is what we do. But Jaffa is the part of the problem because Lincoln is the problem. Because anytime you start talking about this, well, Lincoln was against this. This is the left and the right. This is the left and the right. And I want to move forward in this piece. It's extremely long and I don't want to talk about this thing, you know, for 45 minutes. He says later in the piece, let me go back here because I missed something I wanted to say. Reflecting on this, one might wonder entirely on the level of idle speculation, of course, whether the United States has ceased to be one people. This hypothetical question would of course be a complicated and delicate one. It's never been one people. It's never been one people. It never was, even in Lincoln's time. There's no one people there. This hypothetical question, of course, uh, it could plausibly be suggested that those who still adhere to the original compact remain one people, while those who are no longer what Jefferson called American Whigs, that is, those who no longer hold the principles of the Declaration, have by word indeed left the compact and believed in an entirely different set of principles. This would mean that there are two peoples and two regimes occupying the same country. Theoretically, there's no bar to this Conclusion, however unprecedented and messy it may seem, a practical matter. The second regime might be characterized, hypothetically, of course, by such elements as show trials, public confessions of ideological deviation, the rewriting of history, and the subordination of facts. The self-awareness here is just so funny because Lincoln rewrote history to create the one-people thesis. There was no one people and everyone knew it. John Taylor or Caroline pointed this out. There was no one people at that time. They were having to fabricate this as they went in the early 19th century. And Lincoln just... Used, channeled uh, Marshall, who channeled, and Webster, who channeled Hamilton. I mean, that's all we're doing. It is not the America of Madison or Lincoln. Well, Madison didn't believe there was one people. He didn't. At this point, some readers may question whether the notion of two separate regimes raises the question of secession. So he's going to get into secession. He says, But for the sake of philosophical completeness, let me pursue the question of forcible secession, which means an involuntary breakup of the Union, a voluntary separation agreed to by all the states, going beyond a return to a vigorous federalism, and carried out with the consent of the people of each state, would not be secession, strictly speaking, but simply an exercise by the people of their sovereign authority to remake the government. Is that not what exactly happened in 1860? He has the qualifier. A voluntary separation agreed to by all the states was this agreed to in 1787, no, you'll, 1788, you only did 9 to 13. It wasn't agreed to by all the states at that point, and it may not have been agreed to. So the founders themselves didn't think you needed unanimous consent. They said it in the Articles of Confederation, but they worked around that with the Constitution. So what did they really think? They didn't think unanimous consent was necessary. It was desirable, but not necessary to form a new union or leave the union, which is exactly what happened. If we presume, were to presume, however, that the current administration in Washington along with the supporters among sympathetic states, would resist such a voluntary breakup, then any attempt to leave the union would be would indeed amount to unconstitutional secession. No, it wouldn't. This is just stupid to say that. It's not unconstitutional if these other people... I mean, now, this is getting into Texas v. White of 1869, where the Supreme Court, the Republican-dominated Supreme Court, said secession is only legal if the other states say you can do it. It's only legal then. Well, why would they say that? Because they understood secession actually was legal, but they had to come up with a way for the Congress to get involved and make it to where military reconstruction was constitutional. That's what they were doing because the Congress could kick a state out, but the state couldn't leave themselves. There is no getting around this point that such action would contravene the Constitution and thus undermine any claim such states might make to upholding the Founders' principles. That's not true. I mean, you just that's a throwaway line. But he doesn't. He get he he doesn't even explain that. It's ridiculous. And then he says, "Well, of course." we need to understand the war, was all about slavery, and Lincoln's attempt to keep the South in the Union was all in the nature of the Declaration. It's all part of the Declaration, all that. He, he ignores the the point of a right of people to self-determination. We have free and independent states. And then he gets in the idea that Southerners couldn't issue a Declaration because Jaffa said this. Why? Because that would owe them to the charge that then all men were created equal. But that's not what they said about it. They said, we don't need a Declaration because our fathers already left a, a, an empire and they've already gained their sovereign and independent status and we just resume that. We need no declaration in that way. That's not necessary. This is exactly what they said. So, he says, beyond the Constitution and more fundamental to this, than the specific social compact that formed the American people, there's no American people. It's the most basic of all rights. No less a union than... Man than Lincoln observed any people anywhere being inclined and having the power have the right to rise up and shake off the existing government and to form a new one that suits them better. Jaffa elaborates on his hero remarks on his hero's remarks with this statement. Throughout American history, at least since July 4, 1776, it has been conceded that all people everywhere have a right to resist intolerable oppression. This is a right which belongs not only to the people of the state, but any part of the state. Indeed, it belongs to each individual, although it is a right which is seldom valuable to individuals, since they seldom have the power to make resistance effective. This right is the right of revolution. It is a right of paramount to the Constitution, and to all positive laws, whatever. It is a natural right. At this point, I will end my purely abstract speculations. Even as a theoretical matter, this most radical step would take us into terra incognita. It's a quality of revolution is not to go by old lines or old laws, but to break up both and to make new ones, Lincoln said. But that's not what happened in the Declaration there was no new things. being. The society relatively remained the same in the United States. I mentioned, this on, I mentioned that only at the most, utmost extremity, prudence retains, as always, its sovereign authority. If such a course were to be contemplated, it would be necessary to determine if the present situation is intolerable, whether there is a plausible alternative, that is, a sensible and fairly concrete plan for something better, which would justify extreme action, and if there is a possible path to achieving the, that alternative. This later conclusion need only be possible, not likely. For there are times when honor and justice may command greater enterprises even at immense risk, and even if the outcome depends to some degree on chance or providence. So what's happening here with this Glenn Elmer's piece is that these neocons are starting to realize that the situation they created is breaking apart. This Lincolnian nationalism doesn't work because it's a fabrication. It always has been a fabrication. There's never been a one American people. Lincoln is the problem. He is the linchpin of everything. You take out Lincoln... And we have an entirely different situation in America. You take out the war, the crusade for union in 1861 to 65, and something else happens. First of all, you take out Lincoln's calling for 75,000 troops. Virginia doesn't secede. North Carolina doesn't secede. Tennessee doesn't secede. Kentucky, Missouri. Those states don't leave, there's no war. There's no war. We know that because there was no war up until Lincoln called for 75,000 troops and because Lincoln tried to provision Fort Sumter. We know that if Lincoln had just let the fort be purchased, there would have been no war. And therefore, we still would have had a United States. We still would have had it. And maybe those southern states would have come back in the Union. Who knows how it would have worked? I don't know. But there would have been no war and the United States would have maintained its federal principles. Because of the war... We had to force nationalism. And that is the whole point. That's the whole key to Lincoln. And he had to he had to cover that with this lofty, on ahistorical regurgitation of the declaration and the Gettysburg Address. Okay. So the neocons are starting to figure it out, but it's a little too late, I think, in many ways, for them. For them. I think that think locally, act locally still works. I agree with them in part of this that we can still work from the bottom up. And in some ways, I mean we can separate. I mean, I, I think in every way, we can separate issues from the principles, which is federalism, state powers, all that. It doesn't matter what it's used for had been used for. It matters what it's used for now, which is the principle of the Constitution. That's the important thing. All right, I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.